happened in the 1500s at a time that is a bit hard for us to take in, just what social status being a church leader gave you back then. He was a fellow of a Cambridge college. Never quite sure what a fellow is, but I think it's pretty important. He was a chaplain to King Edward VI. It's obvious that's pretty grand. He was a prebendary of St. Paul's Cathedral. I don't know what that is, but it sounds, sounds high status. Someone afterwards can tell me what a prebendary of St. Paul's Cathedral is. But much better than all of that, he had such a reputation for devotion to God and for unselfishness that he was nicknamed Holy Bradford. Not a poke fun at him, but because he genuinely had a reputation for being an unselfish, holy person. Holy Bradford. Now, this high status, holy man, one day saw a criminal being led away to execution. I wonder what, what terrible crime he think he committed that he was being led away to execution. And John Bradford's response on seeing that man being led away was, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And it's reckoned that's where the saying comes from, there but for the grace of God go I. This man of high status, great reputation says, that's what I would be like if God's grace hadn't restrained my sin. I hope that's your attitude. I hope you're quicker to see your own faults than other people's faults. I hope you take seriously Jesus saying, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. That's a really serious saying. I hope you have love like Jesus has that covers over a multitude of sins, other people's sins, people who sinned against you. We should be reluctant, we should be slow to judge other people. And yet sometimes we must. Sometimes we must. This evening, I need to persuade us to sometimes judge. I hope we need persuading because I hope, as I've just been saying, we are reluctant to judge others and slow to do it. I hope we'll be persuaded because our Lord says sometimes we must. Now, let's have a recap. We're in a series going through 1 Corinthians and we've got to chapter 5. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. So you've got it in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to recap here. The church is told to judge a man and even to expel him from the church. See the last two verses. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. The church is told you are to judge people inside the church and you are to expel this man from the church. It's based on Christ's teachings in Matthew 18. It makes clear links to what Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 18, and it follows the pattern Jesus set. The Lord of the church, remember he's the head, not any of us, tells us there are times when his church must judge. When? When? This is all recap of last time. When? When someone claims to be a Christian but persists in not repenting. Persists in refusing to turn from a sin. 
or refusing to acknowledge and be sorry for a sin. And the church speaks to the person, but the person persists, won't turn, won't acknowledge, won't be sorry, won't go and deal with the, maybe there's been a break in a relationship with someone and won't deal with it. That's when. How? How is the church to judge? Or the whole church must show we are not in fellowship with you. You are not acting like a Christian, so we can't treat you like part of the church. The whole church must show this isn't just a theoretical someone's been removed from the list of members. No, this is all the Christians showing we cannot treat you like part of the church until you're repenting. Now, that's all recap so far of last week when we saw when we are to judge and how we are to judge. Uh, The subject is generally known as church discipline. Now, this time, I want to spend the time on why we are to. I need to do this because this is hard. Church discipline is hard. And it's rare to find it done without fallouts between people about whether it should be done and are we doing the right thing and trouble tends to go along with it. So I need to spend some time on why, because we need persuading. As I've said, because we should be slow and reluctant to judge, yet there are times Jesus says we need to. So why? Why do it? Three reasons. First of all, for the world's sake. Now, I said last time, I'm not claiming I'm preaching through chapter five, verse by verse. I'm taking its topic, church discipline, dealing with it topically. I'm not claiming chapter five sets out here are three reasons to do it. But I think we can get three reasons when we look at the chapter. And I think we can see one hinted at. I think it's only hinted at, but it's there in verse one. Verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. A man has been sinning here in a way that even the world then, and it was a very immoral world, by the way, very much like our society, even the world found shocking. That sort of behaviour. And Paul says it's reported this is going on. So it sounds like this has become known. Now, you put the two of those together. The world finds it shocking and it has become known. And the world is going to start looking and saying, what is this Christianity? That its followers act like that and nothing's done about it. I don't want this Christianity if it's like that. The world has an interest in this. Put this together with what we heard this morning. If you're here this morning, uh, we heard the lengths that Paul went to to establish embassies of the kingdom that would fly the flag for Jesus. Or to put it in the language of Jesus, to establish cities on a hill that would shine his light into a dark world. Paul went to such effort to do that because the world needs Jesus displayed. Well, Paul is insistent here because Jesus is insistent that light must not be polluted. There in Corinth, that light was being made to look like a red light district. The light looked completely different from what it should. Or to take a a different example, 
in, in the town of Philippi, not far from Corinth, it seems the people were arguing and complaining against each other and within the church. And Paul says, stop it so you can shine like lights, like stars, actually, in a dark world. He's insistent the light of the church must not be obscured or tarnished by sin being tolerated. And so we must have church discipline because the world needs the church to shine and not have its light polluted, not have its light unclear. Sadly, it's not hard to illustrate this. Sadly, it's not hard to show the need. Ravi Zacharias was an internationally known evangelist, highly regarded. And it seems that a couple of years ago, there were warning signs something was wrong. Looks like there's something wrong in the way he's behaving. But, but the warning signs were ignored because it's Ravi. He's a great man. He's a great speaker. He's done so much good. There can't really be something fundamentally wrong because it's Ravi. And we all regard him. And look at his ministry. So many people have been saved. We don't want to disrupt that. That was the attitude. And so things just rumbled on until eventually it turned out he was living a lie, a life of persistent sexual sin. And what damage was done? A few years before that, Mark Driscoll was a leader of a mega church. And it wasn't just a mega church. It was a mega church that solidly taught the Bible, boldly taught the Bible. Now, there were examples that were known of ways he'd mistreated people, but the attitude was, he's Pastor Mark. No one dared touch him. And also, a lot of people really were saved through his preaching. And a lot of people really were cared for by him and his wife. You know, I've heard his story more recently and thought, well, look at the bad guy. But when you find out the things that he did for people, wow, this man really showed care for people. And so it was thought, there can't be something fundamentally wrong. And we mustn't endanger the ministry of this church. So much good has been done. But there was something fundamentally wrong. There was rampant ungodliness. And eventually, well, it couldn't be ignored. And the church collapsed. So much damage was done. In both cases, the failure to discipline harmed the cause of Christ. Because many people have seen it, many unbelievers have seen it, and said, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want their Christ. I don't want their Christianity. And who can blame them for saying that? We could use the words of the prophet Nathan, who when David had sinned, said to him, your sin has caused the name of God to be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Church discipline must be done for the world's sake, the world that needs the church to shine the light of Christ without it being obscured by tolerating sin. Here's the second reason we must do it. Second reason why. For the sinner's sake. We're moving on to verse 5 now. For the sinner's sake. Well, actually, before we get into verse 5, it's worth taking in again verse 1. Let's just have a think. What's behind verse 1? Here's a man and he's in the church. And he's thought of as a Christian. 
there must have been convincing signs he's trusted Jesus. Otherwise he wouldn't be in the church. And look at what he's doing. He has his father's wife. In other words, has sexual relations with his father's wife. People who appear Christians can fall into terrible sin. Now, if you, if you get into 2 Corinthians, you find good news. This man has repented. And this man is restored into the church. And 2 Corinthians seems to imply this man was a Christian who'd fallen and is restored. And that tells us something amazing. Christians can fall into terrible sin. This is a terrible sin. This is a shocking sin. And a Christian fell into it. You and I can fall into terrible sin. You know, I felt nervous saying things about Ravi Zacharias and Mark Driscoll because it could look at, let, let's stand here and have a go at other people. But it's got to be said with this knowledge, you and I can fall into terrible sin. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we need a church we can rely on. We need a church we can rely on that it won't take the easy option of turning a blind eye if we fall into sin. It won't say a few words because it knows it ought to, but then, wow, let's just leave it alone. And let us continue in our sin. Mark Driscoll had a friend who lived with him in the early years of his ministry. And... This friend, later, when everything fell apart, apologised to Mark Driscoll. And he said this apology. He said, when I lived with you, I saw warning signs of things wrong in your character. And I said a bit, but I pulled my punches. Do you know what it is to pull your punches? You pull back instead of properly punching through. His friend said to Mark Driscoll, I am sorry that I pulled my punches. And I and I chickened out of really clearly saying to you, look, things are wrong and you need to repent. That was unloving of me. I, I heard this man say that. I said, That's quite amazing to hear this man say, I apologise to Mark Driscoll because I was unloving not to say things clearly to him. We need the church not to pull its punches because all of us are capable of falling into terrible sin. We need that because of something in verse 5. Verse 5 is a very unusual verse. It talks about handing someone over to Satan. That means putting someone out of the church. The church is the realm of Jesus. Outside in the world is in the power of Satan. But let's have a look at verse 5. I'm not going to explain it all. I did last week. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Verse 5 reminds us there is such a thing as the day of the Lord. Although churches may turn a blind eye to unrepented sin, the Lord won't. No, he won't. Whoever we are, Whatever other people think of us, he won't turn a blind eye. And we don't want to get, I don't want to get to that day. I hope you don't want to get to that day and say, Lord, Lord, look at my status in the church. Look at my record of church involvement. 
Look at my doctrinally correct beliefs. And have Jesus say, go away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. It's not that we'll be saved by our success at fighting sin. I hope you don't think that. That is not the issue at all here. It's not our success or lack of success in fighting sin. That is not the issue. It's about a repentant attitude. A, I want to turn from that sin and follow Jesus. The man in 1 Corinthians 5 would not be saved by his success at fighting sin. That's not the issue. But he wouldn't be saved without repenting of his sin. And so... The church is told you must take action to show him repentance is not optional. So his spirit is saved on the day of the Lord. It's a necessity. Now, this answers possibly the most common objection to church discipline. If a church engages in church discipline, there almost certainly will be someone who says what? Who says How can you do that? That's so unloving. Almost every time someone will say that. You can't do that. It's so unloving. Well, actually, it's unloving not to, is what verse 5 is telling us. That's taking the easy option for us. We don't want the trouble. We don't want the fallout. Instead of doing the hard work of loving someone and showing him or her, you must repent. We want your spirit to be saved on the day of our Lord. I'll try to illustrate some of of these issues that go on with church discipline by a, a real example from church history. There was a man called Jonathan Edwards. He was one of the greatest church leaders in the history of the American church. He was a preacher at a time of one of the greatest revivals there's been and saw many people saved. And so I find it really sad that his ministry at his church ended really under a cloud and with quite a lot of fallout between him and people in the church. One of the ways that happened was he said you shouldn't take communion unless you are clearly repenting and believing. Now, there were people in his church who would sit in church and take his words when he told them to repent and believe because, well, that's words. And then we can go out and ignore them. And we come back the next week and we just carry on and it doesn't matter, does it? He says the words, but we can just ignore them. But when he tried to take action, actually, no, you can't just sit there and ignore them. You can't take communion if you don't repent and believe. There was a fallout in the church. There was uproar in the church about this. You're going to actually stop us taking communion? Sometimes it's said, now you can't do church discipline because it will drive people away. And we don't want to drive them away because we need them to stay and to listen to God's word and then we'll trust God's word to do the work. Well, how can we say we trust God's word to do the work if we're not trusting his word enough to do what it says? What it says here in 1 Corinthians 5. And God's word tells us take action so people can see his words aren't just empty words. They do have consequences. Failure to repent does have consequences. 
Well, that wasn't the end. That put a cloud over Jonathan Edwards' ministry, and it stayed under that cloud, sadly, basically, for the rest of the time. But the real nail in the coffin for Edwards' ministry was a little bit later. Young people in the church, I think they were like in their 20s, I think that's young, they, they got hold of a midwifery manual. And this was getting passed around and getting put to immoral use. Now, that might sound really quaint and odd to you. Remember, there wasn't the Internet and there weren't even magazines and news agents. So you get the idea. It was taking place of that. There was immorality going on. And Edwards got the church together and said, we must discipline those who are persisting in this. And the church agreed. Yes, we must. We must discipline the people who are persisting in this. We mustn't have the church sullied by immorality. So Edward started to do it. And then there was uproar. Do you know why there was uproar? Because people discovered the young people were their children. Their adult 20-something children. And they agreed to it in theory when it was the church must do this. But it was a different matter when they found out. It's someone close to me. Often people supposedly agree with church discipline until it's someone close to them. But it's so muddle-headed. How does this link into my point that I was making? It links in this way. It's so muddle-headed because we are all capable of terrible sin. And we all need that the church will take that seriously and not allow us to continue in it. We all need a church that will not pull its punches, but will love us enough to take difficult action. We must do church discipline for the sinner's sake. But then thirdly, lastly, we must do it for the church's sake, the church's sake. This is in verse 6. Now, we've had baking illustrations for the last couple of weeks. I've used baking illustrations. And here we have another in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Now, I wonder if you've got a bread maker. We've got a bread maker in our house and you put the ingredients inside. You put the flour in first and you put the butter and the sugar and the water and the salt, a little bit of salt. And you put yeast on the top. That's what it tells you to do. You put the yeast on the top. And our one, it's actually got a thing in the top and it will drop it in later. But the yeast doesn't stay on the top. No, yeast doesn't stay on the top. The yeast doesn't expand the top bit you've put it in while the rest of it all stays doughy and doesn't expand. No. You see, this bread maker, it kneads the dough. It pummels it. It mixes it until the, the yeast has worked through the whole batch. That's what verse 6 is talking about. In verse 6, it says, the church is like that batch of dough. The unrepenting sinner is like the yeast. And I would add, if there's proper church life, that's like the kneading. I'm going to push Paul's illustration further. I think if there's proper church life, that's like the kneading. You see, if there's proper church life, people don't just turn up to a church meeting, then off they go. No, they get to know each other and they're in and out of each other's houses and they pray together. And that's like the needing because it works things through the church. Including things that are not good sometimes. 
Because it means if someone's unrepentant, if there's something wrong at heart, it will spread. That's what verse 6 is saying. The yeast doesn't stay on the top of the dough, it works through the whole batch. And if there's someone unrepentant, it won't stay isolated, it will work through the church, if there's proper church life. If we're not just a meeting, come and go and ignore each other. It will work through. Now, notice there's no sign that the man in 1 Corinthians 5 is going around the church teaching anything wrong. There's no hint that he's teaching other people, come on, be immoral, it's good fun. There's no sign he's stirring things up and got a campaign to change the church. There's no sign he's going around being a troublemaker. But his example will make trouble. His his rottenness of heart won't stay in his heart. When the church tolerates sin, the signal is picked up by others about what's okay. If someone in the church is dating an unbeliever and it seems to just be accepted by the church, that's okay. The church just seems to be fine with it. Or if a man and woman in the church seem to be acting immorally, It gets known that they are in each other's houses, just the two of them, alone until late at night, regularly. It looks like immoralities going on there. And it looks like it's just acceptable to the church. What will happen? What will happen, realistically, if we know our hearts? What will happen when the young people of the church notice that? People are going to, believers are going to start dating unbelievers. There are going to be people starting to have sex outside of marriage. I say that quite confidently. I can't guarantee it will happen, but I think it's highly likely to happen because examples do get followed. And what is accepted does get noticed. Yeast will spread. And so we must do church discipline for the church's sake. There are three reasons. Three reasons For the world's sake, for the sinner's sake, for the church's sake. Now, I don't know if if anyone thinks I'm labouring the point. And we've had two sermons, two Sundays on church discipline. I don't know if anyone does or not. I would quote to you Philippians 3. Do you know what Paul says there? It's not about church discipline, by the way. I'm pulling it out of context. He says, it is no trouble for me to say the same things to you, but for you it is a safeguard. For us, it is a safeguard. If you read Evangelicals Now, it's a good newspaper, Christian newspaper called Evangelicals Now. It's a good read, but it's been pretty depressing recently. The last few months have told us about a lot of scandals in evangelical churches. Individuals and the church and the witness to the world have been hurt. Too often there's been a failure to follow the Lord's instructions. And the results have been grievous. Jesus knows best. Let's finish with some good news. Let's have some good news to end with. It's worth it. Taking loving action is hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it, why? Because there's such a person as the Holy Spirit. And he can use us obeying Jesus and following his instructions to bring people, to bring the most obstinate people to change and to repent. We shouldn't give up hope on anyone. Why? 
Because they are soft-hearted. Because they look like, look hopeful. No, because they're such a person as the Holy Spirit. It's worth it also because they're such a person as our Saviour. And he will welcome and forgive even this man in 1 Corinthians 5. He wasn't beyond forgiveness. Even this man in 1 Corinthians 5, who was sleeping with his father's wife, Jesus will welcome and forgive when he repents. And he'll welcome and forgive even you and me. However vile our sin, however repeated our sin, when we repent. There's good news to end with. Let's pray.